We'll turn your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it is a different part of the letter altogether. It's so significantly different in tone uh, that some modern commentators doubt that it was part of the original letter. Some surmise it's so direct, it's so confrontational, it's so different uh, that it was either part of the severe letter that Paul sent to confront them, uh, or it was another follow-up letter to rebuke them altogether. It's that much of a difference the way Paul communicates. For nine chapters, Paul has encouraged them. For nine chapters, Paul has instructed them, but it's been wearing cloaks or robes. It's been in the context of you're doing well, keep it up. You've been repentant, praise God. You're obeying now, wonderful. And then we hit chapter 10. And it, the gloves come off, the cannons are opened up, and Paul goes after it. It is spiritual warfare in a totally different way. And it's coming from a guy that they all think is weak, powerless, ineffective, stumbles over his words, and frankly, they think he's a scaredy cat and a coward. But Paul knows what it's like to go into spiritual warfare. I wonder if you've had spiritual warfare this week. You have, whether you know it or not. You have, and you've had moments to speak truth into someone's life, whether they were resistant or accepting. You've had it as you fought temptation and considered in those moments, and you're vacillating between your flesh and the spirit. Am I going to be ruled by my flesh? Am I going to be ruled by my spirit, by the spirit? You've had it in moments when you've had opportunities for ministry. You've had it in moments of trials where you've considered, am I going to think truth about this, or am I going to continue to believe the lies that constrain my life. Every one of us has gone through spiritual warfare this week. In fact, you're in spiritual warfare in this moment. This is a moment where God wants to speak through his word to you, where he wants to communicate with you. And, and so this is spiritual warfare for me. Uh, I'm thankful, as, as Darren prayed, that may Steve not preach in the power of the flesh, but in the power of the spirit. That's a spiritual warfare moment. It's spiritual warfare for you. Will you receive the word Will you heed the word? Will you obey the word? Will, will you let the word penetrate into your lives and hearts? We walk through spiritual warfare all the time. Paul is very cognizant of that. And now as he comes to chapter 10, it's a whole new uh, kind of way of addressing this problem. And so from chapter 10 to the end of the letter, uh, the tone is uh, astoundingly direct. It is sarcastic at times, uh, intentionally so. I know many of us are uncomfortable with sarcasm because most of us use sarcasm sinfully. Uh, by its literal word, it means to cut the flesh. Sarcasm in the hand and through the mouth of God is safe, and it's intended to cut through, if we could say it this way, the sinful flesh of someone, to penetrate their mind and their heart with the way they're thinking. Paul used sarcasm. He's going to be uh, really direct, confrontationally so, offensively so in some occasions, all to get his point across. He understands that he is a leader, and he is at war. And so he's going to fight it like he is fighting for lives and souls, because he understands that he is. Part of the difficulty he's facing, though, is he's fighting this with people who think very little of him. And he's fighting this spiritual warfare in, in an atmosphere where people think he's weak, and cowardly and ineffective and so thereby use that accusation to dismiss the content 
of his sermon. If you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians 10, we're just going to get through the first six verses this morning. So let me read from verses 1 through 6 of 2 Corinthians 10. Paul says this, I, Paul, myself, I just want to pause there because it's going to be in the sermon later on. When he starts the letter, he said, Paul and Timothy, this is a group. Now Paul makes this very personal. Uh, mano and mano. Let, let me tell you, I'm writing this part. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. If there's anything I'd want you to remember this week, it's this, that true leaders wage spiritual warfare in Christ's power and not their own. 1974, Kinshasa, Zimbabwe, now the Congo, Democratic Congo Republic. Muhammad Ali is making his comeback. He had fought two really weak opponents. He was now attempting to regain the heavyweight title of the world. He's in his early 30s, and his opponent is a muscular, hard-hitting George Foreman, 25 years of age. Muhammad Ali was a 4-1 to one underdog headed into that fight. Muhammad Ali, as was his pattern, had done a lot of talking and goading and egging George Foreman on. George Foreman uh, was typically quiet and reserved and reticent. Uh, George Foreman liked to let his gloves do the talking rather than his mouth. He didn't have the wit and the, and the wiliness of Muhammad Ali. Everyone expected him to go into this fight and absolutely destroy Muhammad Ali. They stepped into the ring at some 3 o'clock in the morning, Kinshasa time, so that it could be broadcast here. It was the first real pay-per-view event that had ever taken place. So they could show here about 10 p.m. They stepped in the ring, and Muhammad Ali began to unleash a sharp right jab, but he would never follow it up, which was uncommon. You hit with the right, when they go to guard it, you hit them with the left hook. And he wasn't. His jabs were landing, but there was no damage happening to George Foreman. George Foreman was responding quickly, with huge battering blows. He was known to throw these seemingly wild haymakers from his waist that channeled all the energy from his muscular calves, through his thighs, through his abdomen, his chest. And finally, when that fist would land, he was known to knock opponents out. He hit Ali repeatedly. Ali backed up, and he began to lean against the ropes. He was leaning so far against the ropes that one reporter described it as it looked like a man who lived in a tall apartment building leaning far out of his window trying to see the rooftop. Foreman landed shot after shot after shot. He landed them on Ali's arms as he tried to cover up his body. He landed them on his hands as he tried to cover up his head. Some of them snuck through. At one point in the fourth round, Foreman connected solidly with Ali's chin. Ali grabbed him, pulled him in close, wrapped him up, and before the referee could get there, whispered in Foreman's ear, is that all you got? Goading him 
round after round after round, leaning further on the ropes. In the eighth round, George Foreman was punched out, completely and utterly exhausted, almost throwing punches on sheer muscle memory. You could tell, and if you were to watch the video, you can see that the punches have no more power in them any longer. And at that point, Ali saw his moment, and stunning the crowd, he launches himself off the ropes, plants his legs solidly, and lands two sharp right jabs to the face of Foreman who is now so tired, he has a difficult time covering up. And for the first time in the fight, he followed it up. Ali threw a left uppercut, which set Foreman's chin up to the sky. With a right hook, he sent him crashing to the canvas. And Foreman never got up in time. And Ali had won the heavyweight title of the world. When they look at the fight, it became known as the rumble of the jungle. But the strategy was called the rope-a-dope. As Ali leaned against the ropes, all the punishment that he was taking was literally being absorbed into the elastic ropes of the ring as his body would bounce against them. For weeks leading up to the fight, Ali had practiced by having opponents literally hit him without him guarding himself to make sure he didn't have a glass jaw and he could take the punishment. You see, you had two fighters in that ring, but they were fighting two very different fights. One was fighting only with his strength and his fists, and the other was fighting with his mind and strategy. And the one that they thought was weak actually was the one with all the power. That kind of thing has happened throughout history in a number of ways. It happened when Hannibal, for the first time as a North African general, faced down the Roman legions. And as the Roman legions marched upon him with an impenetrable set of shields and armor, his middle of his line began to collapse. And the Roman legions thought they had the battle. They could now split his forces in two. But they didn't collapse. They had flexed. They created a circle surrounding the Roman legions, crushing them in and using their own strength of their shields against them, their inability to swing their swords. Hannibal's army mowed them down. And he was the first general to win a battle that way. Henry V did it when he invited the, at Agincourt, when he invited the French troops to ride down on him and carrying their heavy armor, unleashed the English longbow, which again mowed them down. And he won a victory. It's amazing how often actually when you look through the strategies of this world that you will see generals time after time after time use that. Napoleon uses it at Austerlitz when he invites the Austrian army seemingly to retreat to charge across a frozen river. His cannons then unleashed upon the river drowning the enemy army. It's amazing how often weakness seems to be where the real strength is. They think that Paul is weak. They think that Paul is powerless. They think that Paul is a wimp. And so they think he will lose. But the reality is, Paul has all the strength of God in him. These false teachers wanted to undermine Paul's influence. They were fighting to have a following. And so they were saying things about Paul. They were questioning his leadership and his methods. And Paul now answers them. And Paul understands this truth, that true leaders wage spiritual warfare they do it's impossible if you lead in any capacity you will be engaged in waging spiritual warfare but they understand they must do it in christ's power and not their own and so first of all we want to understand what is a powerful leader anyway uh, the truth is the corinthians were looking for power but all they were finding was weakness a study was done some time ago i think it was an army colonel he was doing it for as he was working on a business degree 
of what are the kind of leaders that people look for. Most people, and a running away percentage of the majority of people, look for leaders that they perceive are somehow better than themselves. They feel like if I'm going to follow a leader, then they have to be stronger than I am. They have to be smarter than I am. They have to be more confident than I am. They have to be more creative with their ideas, and then that's a leader that I can follow. In the spiritual realm, the perspective is that person needs to be more spiritual than I am, more holy than I am, have more character than I have, have more discipline than I have. In our insecurities, then, we tend to be drawn to leaders that we think are somehow better than ourselves. We want bold and confident leaders. It's part of our psychological makeup. We want somebody who's confident. We want somebody who's strong. We want leaders who don't seem to bend to the unpredictable winds of pleasing people until it's about whether they please me. We want leaders who who have courage when we don't. Now, I don't think any of those desires are really the problem. I think the problem is what we think those kinds of leaders actually look like. And I think the problem is what we perceive those leaders actually to be. In the world, those kinds of traits tend to be found in very narcissistic leaders. Guys like Steve Jobs, Patton, Napoleon, and frankly, most celebrities that surround our world. We suddenly bow the knee to people who are actually great at promoting themselves. Famously, a BBC reporter followed Kim Kardashian around for a while. And he was trying to figure out why was she so famous, and he was really asking, what do you do? Do you know what she's really good at? She's really good at being famous and promoting herself. And yet people bow the knee to folks like this. I think that being drawn to narcissistic leaders, frankly, whether that's in the world or it's in the church, with big personality pastors, and celebrities that we want to follow, I think it actually says a lot more about us than it even says about them. I think that being drawn to narcissistic leaders is living in the lie that self-confidence is the same as courage, that self-promotion is the same as having real value, that unbridled wrath is the same as power, and that if someone loves you for what you do for them or how you make them feel, that that's actually the same as true love, and it's not. The best scriptural example of this is Israel. When they wanted a king, they looked for a guy who could fight well, who was handsome, and who stood head and shoulders above everyone else. And so they choose King Saul, who is an abysmal spiritual failure. We routinely do a terrible job of perceiving what real leadership is. Remember, the Corinthian church was prone to find their identity in leaders. Do you remember that from 1 Corinthians chapter 1? I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Paul, I am of Christ. My identity is suddenly found in someone that I think is respectable. My sense of respect is found in the respectability of the leader that I follow. The Corinthians thought that the battle was about who was stronger, who was the best speaker, who was the most successful in ministry, who was the most charming person. That's who they wanted to follow. Out of that framework, they pass judgment now on the Apostle Paul, who stumbles over his speech who isn't known for his physical presence of strength, who may have been going blind, needed other people to help them, who is naked and abandoned at times, who is afflicted and persecuted. And so when you approach God's leader, Paul, through a framework of the world's perspective, he accounts for nothing, and he's a nobody. Why should they follow his leadership? 
And so it's this painful moment for Paul. They really, it reminds me of an old chick track. My dad used to have, I don't know if any of you have seen chick tracks. They're actually terrible tracks. They're like horrific. But if you can step outside of the theology of them, you might be amused by some of them, right? And one of them, I remember this as a little boy because my dad had a stack of them in his toolbox and I'd go and I'd read through them. I just was captivated by this. And one of them was this huge burly trucker and and he makes fun of Christians because Jesus is a sissy. And the way Jack Trick, Jack Chick writes it then is he encounters now this massive mountain of a man who follows Jesus. And I remember as a child being captivated by that idea. But even in that concept, there is a mix of, frankly, worldly thinking that what a big, burly man needs is a bigger, burlier guy who follows Jesus. Is that what our world needs? Is that what Corinth needed? And there were some things that Paul had done that I think when we process through these even culturally, we can understand the the way the false teachers were able to get a following. See, because what Satan does, and particularly through his false teachers, is he'll take a grain of truth and he wraps it in a lie and we focus on the true part and we just buy the whole thing. We swallow the whole lie. And so, first of all, they thought of Paul as having big talk but small walk. Look back down your text. Paul is actually being sarcastic here. He says, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. That's actually an accusation they were making about him. And if you have your Bibles, you can actually see this in verse 10, where he says this, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. This is sarcasm. This is Paul saying, okay, the guy who you think is bold when he writes to you and weak when he's there is writing boldly again to you. But watch out, I'm coming. That's kind of what he's saying. I am going to show up. And when I show up, you're going to find out what real boldness is. But they thought of Paul that he is big talk and small walk. We have a phrase today during a fight, say it to my face. Uh, One time when I was working at uh, the famed Chuck E. Cheese, uh, first job, and I'm there, and I got a guy, and he comes in, and it's a Saturday night, and Saturday night was a zoo, folks. I mean, it was crazy. We had people literally lined up around the building. It was the last bus stop on the west side of Baltimore. And we had people lined up around the building. We didn't serve alcohol. People would show up with igloos full of alcohol and try to sneak it in to a kid's arcade pizza place. You got issues if you're doing that, right? We had undercover cops. And I had this guy come, and I don't know, his kid had lost a token, right, or something. And he came, he's like yelling at me, and he, and he wasn't this big guy. Um, I'm not a tall guy, but he wasn't a big guy. And he's like yelling at me. And he kept like, like bumping his chest at me saying, step off, step off, step off. I didn't even understand what he was talking about. I didn't know this dude was ready to throw hands. And I'm just like a little bit at that point still naive 15-year-old. And I'm like, okay, I don't, I, what are you doing? And the cop had to jump in and pull us apart, right? And, and the guy is screaming things like, step, step to me, I'll be outside. And it's this whole concept of you're a big talker, but are you going to walk it? And that was their view of Paul. When Paul would write to them, some of the false teachers are saying, Paul has no problem being bold until he gets in your face. It's easy to talk behind someone's back, but say it to their face. In our lingo, it's easy to be a troll on the internet. It's easy to say stuff on social media. It's easy to say stuff on Facebook or or the next door app that, that I'm on that just constantly amuses me. It's easy. 
It's easy to hide behind a keyboard. It's hard to meet with a person face to face. And so we naturally, uh, even now a thousand, fifteen, almost 2,000 years removed, we naturally tend to view someone who's willing to say it at a distance but won't communicate in our person. It is natural for us to perceive them as weak. They view Paul as weak. Now, let me contrast that. Hold your finger here with the way the false teachers acted in Corinth. We'll get here in a few weeks, but I at least want you to see what these false teachers were like in their presence. So here their perspective is Paul shows up and he's weak, he's meek, he's mild, he's gentle, um, and, and we'll unpack even more what his response was like the last time he was there. But he writes these hard letters. Look over in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 how Paul describes what these false teachers are like when they're with them. You see it in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, I'll pick up in verse 18. You gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. He's talking about the false teachers. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or listen to this one, or strikes you in the face. Why? I mean, let's get that picture, right? So you got a false teacher and he's in Corinth, and he's teaching Sunday school. And he's talking about Sunday school, and he's teaching stuff, and he's talking about how the best gift is tongues, and you should use tongues, and tongues is the best thing. And I mean, if you're not talking in tongues, you don't really have the spirit. And, and this guy kind of raises his hand in Sunday school class. He says, I'm not calling on people right now. I'm busy teaching. And, and the guy keeps his hand up, and it just annoys the false teacher. And he's like, no, tongues is the thing. And the guy goes, that's not what Paul said. And the false teacher walks four rows back and smacks him in the face. Pow! Shut your mouth. Can you imagine that scene? That's what these guys were like. And the false teacher is claiming that's power. It's like when a mom or dad is angry over their children's sin. And they think, they think if I raise my voice a little louder, if when I give corporal punishment I hit you a little harder, I'm going to affect some change here. I wonder if maybe some of us are adults, but we grew up in homes and in situations and in workplaces where we were raised to believe that true leadership leads with fear and intimidation and anger and wrath and harsh words. And that's power. I don't wonder if some of us lead that way. And so they, the Corinthians look at Paul, and the false teacher is covering up their own sin. And the false teacher is saying, see, my anger and my wrath, am I devouring you? And you can think of that in Galatians where he talks about biting and devouring one another that's personalized attacks like that's the kind of thing a false teacher would do it'd be a personal you make it, i'm gonna make it a personal about you right they already did that with paul you don't look good you don't talk well you're ugly you're hard to listen to any of their strengths they 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 cast it as i've earned it and any of paul's weaknesses they cast it as sinful and so the corinthians are being confused by these people and they're being led astray by them and they believe that and i think one of the saddest indictments on christianity is i think so often as christians we think that's what we need anger filled 
loudmouth big personalities who try to assemble a crowd to themselves and constantly devour their enemies. And so they looked at Paul and they said, you got big walk, but you got small talk. But it goes on from that. There was decisions Paul would make where they said, you got bark, but not bite. <laughs> it's similar. It's similar. You can actually see this way back in 1 Corinthians. And I, and I think this is important. In 1 Corinthians, Paul had written this to them. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, what happened? Hey, Paul, this is a threat, right? We, we're not going to get around this. You want me to come with a rod or gentleness? That sounds like a threat. Then Paul shows up and the business meeting goes bad. It goes all kinds of ugly. This train jumps off the rails and Paul leaves. And so their perspective of Paul was that he would make a threat but not follow up. Paul clearly had left Corinth hurt and struggling. He unpacked that, and we walked through that at the start of 2 Corinthians. So some could easily be accusing Paul of making empty threats. Was this a leadership failure? Was it wrong? Paul had said, I'm going to do this, and then he did it. Is this the same as, as like the mama in the, in the, in the department store when, when you're hiding in the middle of the clothing rack? I never would do that. And she can't find you, Right? And there's the kidnapping children craze, so she's terrified. Her blood pressure's through the roof. And, and then she's like, when we get home, when we get home, it's coming. And then you're a smart child, i.e., read that as conniving. So you pretend to, with your angelic look to fall asleep in the car. You know, because mom hates to wake you up because you just want to convince mom, I could never harm this angelic creature in front of me. And mom doesn't follow through, and you as a kid think, I won. Is that what happened? No, I just want to remind you, Paul said, if the Lord wills, I'm going to come. By the end of 1 Corinthians, says, I'm not going to come right away. And then he showed up anyway. You see, leaders actually understand at times that situations are complex, and they are nuanced. And you have to make decisions, and sometimes, as a leader, you need to change what you said was going to happen. You just have to. What was significant is when Paul got to Corinthians, and I can prove this to you later in the sermon, when Paul got to Corinthians, what happened was he expected, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to be able to deal with a church majority who loves and follows Jesus, and I'm going to be able to then have the support of the church that it needs to govern themselves and needs to put on guard against false teachers. That's the church's responsibility. I'm going to have a whole church that's going to support that. Instead, he, and I'll be able, then I can focus on these however many false teachers, these two or three, this little group. Instead, he gets to Corinth, and what he found was two or three false teachers, one dude railing on a business meeting, and the whole church was going, who's going to win? And didn't see themselves in it at all. And Paul said, there's no way for me to exact leadership in this environment. I can't lead a people by God's grace who won't be led. And it's the same kind of thing now, but now Paul knows something different, doesn't he? Now he knows the Corinthians have repented. Now he knows when he shows up in Corinth, it's going to be a whole nother ball game. Paul isn't making empty threats. Paul is making timely threats. People need spiritual leaders who understand the nuance of different situations. 
People need spiritual leaders who are not so rules-driven. Here's my rules. Hey, because when you have to, as a leader, you've got to make a rule. You're trying to flesh out application. But they need leaders who are not so rules-oriented that there's no flexibility, that there's no comprehension of nuance. You see, people need spiritual leaders who don't just protect them, although you need leaders who protect you. That's why they're called shepherds beat off the wolves. We are comforted in the valley of the shadow of death by God's rod and staff. That's used to pull you back and used to beat off enemies. That's what, that's what shepherds do, Psalm 23. That's what under-shepherds are supposed to do in the power of God before the chief shepherd is supposed to pull you back and beat off enemies. That's what they need. But you don't just need shepherds to do that because your shepherds, your under-shepherds, we're sheep too. And so you don't just need to be protected. You need to be taught how to be on guard and wield the weapons of the Spirit. You need to be taught how to fight the good fight. Not just always having somebody, you need to be taught how to discern when you hear false teaching, not just constantly told that's false teaching. You need to be turned how to, how, taught how to discern engaging with this world, not just be told, here's a list of what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. See, lists never disciple you, and they actually leave you at great risk. Because you will not always have somebody with you to tell you this is right or wrong. You need people who feed you, but don't just feed you, but teach you how to fish so you can be fed on the word all week long. You need people who don't just confront you, leaders who don't just confront you, but leaders who disciple you. The Corinthians' accusation and all this boils down to one word, and it's an easy word to remember. It's the word cowardice. They think Paul is weak, ineffective. They think Paul is scared of them. How can they respect a leader who fears them? How can they follow one who stammers in their presence instead of has the ability to out-talk them? How do they follow a leader who gets so hurt he walks away instead of raging in defense? They're used to false teachers who smack them in the mouth if they say something they don't agree with. Paul stood there and cried and walked away. They saw that's weak. I'm going to tell you something. It takes a lot of the power of the Spirit sometimes to walk away, doesn't it? They need a, a spiritual leader who doesn't just want to throw hands to prove how powerful he is, but is willing to be the balm of Gilead. They want a leader that they can follow. They want one with power and confidence. They want one with, with vigor and strength. They want one with a witty tongue, a sharp mind, one who isn't afraid to use those things. They want one who is building a powerful movement and a group that they can be proud to be a part of. They aren't looking for a lamb in lion's clothing, but they think the fight is about power and influence. They think the fight is about a majority. They think the fight is about popularity. They think the fight is about visible success. Not Paul. Paul knows that's not what the fight is about at all. Paul knows that the fight is about souls. Paul isn't interested in being a demon who acts like an angel of light. Like the other false teachers. No, Paul would rather lead them following the line of Judah, who came first as the Lamb of God. Spiritual leadership could never happen in man's strength. Paul needs the strength of Jesus. That's why he says this, I entreat you over and over again. It's like five different times in 2 Corinthians alone. He uses words like, I beg you, I entreat you, I plead with you. He's pleading with them. He is empowering them with a request. I'm begging you to do this. I'm pleading with you to do this. This isn't for me. This is for you. I'm begging you to do this and he says i'm doing this by meekness meekness is strength under control in other words paul would have had all the strength paul had trained at the feet of gamaliel 
Paul was a debater, an arguer. Paul knew how to wage a fierce defense. Paul is, is gifted as an orator, ultimately. And Paul is a powerful, strong man who knows how to lead others. But he is pleading with them through the restrained strength under the power of the Spirit, the meekness and gentleness. And gentleness here is commonly used in secular Greek society to refer to a leader who is able to lead people without browbaiting them into submission. Why is Paul leading like this? Because this is spiritual, folks. And he knows these folks need to grow and change in the power of Jesus. True leaders wage spiritual warfare in Christ's power and not their own. And so Paul drops a great word here in verse 4. Let's press on. He says this way in verse We'll pick up verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, when they used the word flesh, they meant in his bodily weakness. They capitalized on that because we know he had some eye issues. He had some physical weakness issues. He's probably worn down, beaten down. He'd experienced beatings. Frankly, when he showed up to them, he had recently been beaten. And so they meant flesh, physical. Paul uses flesh here, spiritual. It's, it's a fascinating phrase. For though we walk in the physical body, the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The word warfare there is the ultimate root from where we get the term strategy. Paul says, I'm fighting word here. I'm fighting a war here. I'm fighting strategically. I'm fighting thoughtfully. I'm, uh, we could think of it, <laughs> it's like Ali is rope-a-doping. They're fighting, they're the same battle, but they're fighting two very different fights. Honestly, if you want a gathering... If you want a group of people to follow you, if you want to be successful in religious leadership, the path is actually pretty clear. Be very charismatic and charming. Cap your teeth. Get some work done, right? Be charismatic. Be charming. Um, tell people what they want to hear. That'll always lead, get, a, get a gathering, Right? I'm going to appeal to you with what you want to hear. We all got itching ears. We like to hear what we're told. So tell them what they want to hear. Be charismatic. Be charming. Tell them all the things they want to know. They want to hear. Be defensive when somebody confronts you. Abusive towards your detractors. Gather a bunch of yes men around you and never admit you're wrong. Now, now people will get hurt in the process, but that's okay. That's okay. Because the path to your success will be strewn with many bodies you will walk over. And history is filled with men, primarily, although there's some, there's some stunning examples in female leadership this way. And so if people, who this is how they lead, charismatic, charming, fill people's ears with what they want to hear, be defensive towards detractors, gather yes-men, abusive towards others, and you'll gather a following. Our world is full of insecure people who really want to be loved. They are. And so narcissists find those folks, and they love you for what you do for them. Narcissists love you for how you make them feel. And the moment you don't make them feel good, their love goes away. But it's drawing because it makes you feel special. Now, I'm going to step on some toes, but it's a cultural example. Hopefully, it helps you. You ever seen, I mean, this is like 
in movies, literature, where you ever seen really bad dude, right? He has a train, he leaves a trail of crushed, broken-hearted women behind him. Right? Like everybody knows this dude's a player. Next girl comes along, and we all look at it and we like, how does she fall for a loser? Because he convinces her, you're finally the true one that I love. And that makes her heart leap because she now has a string of seven or eight women to which she, against which she can compare herself and think of herself better than them because she's really a very insecure person. And so he takes advantage of her. She thinks she can change him. You're not changing him. He's just so smart. He knows how to make you feel loved. Well, really, you're only good to him until he's done with you. This is what all narcissistic leaders do. You only have value to them, and we buy into it because we are naturally insecure people, and we don't find our identity in Jesus. Paul knows how to gather a following. Paul knows what it would take to get a group. It's obvious we can see it objectively, what it takes, and Paul refuses to do it. I love how Jesus did it. Every time Jesus ended up with like thousands of people, he would say things like, just so you know, you got to eat of my body and drink of my blood. And they're like, what? And he goes from like 20,000 to 12. And Jesus is okay with that. Because he wasn't primarily on mission to get a whole huge gathering. How do you lead? Do you lead in your areas in spiritual warfare primarily to get acceptance and followership? Do you lead through the power of your emotions or manipulate through the power of your influence? Do you are you more like these false teachers? I think the reality is all of us can do those at various times. And I think we're probably either completely blind to our sinfulness or resistant to the truth that we've all done it sometimes. I think it's easy to base our feelings of success and identity on if people are following us. I mean, how can you lead if you ain't got nobody following you anyway, right? And so whatever it means it takes to keep you in line following me makes us feel good about it. But Paul has a higher mission, and so he says, no, I'm going to use divine strategy. And so he's going to use Christ's weapons first. That's what he's going to use. He says, okay, there's some weapons. This is war. He's not clueless. He knows he's in a fight. But he's going to use Christ's weapons not his own. He says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. And so what is the divine power behind the weapons he uses? And so the first one is truth. Paul speaks truth. His weapons, Christ's weapons, are marked by truth. You see, Paul isn't the only apostle that knows what James said. Excuse me, when James says, man's anger worketh not the righteousness of God. Paul knows his anger isn't going to fix hearts and souls. He knows, though, that people need to have truth. You see, terrible spiritual leaders, will, well, they were not going to tell you truth because at the moment they tell you truth, they're going to risk losing you. You're going to step on somebody's toes, and leaders don't want to do that. Uh, faith, false leaders. <laughs> spiritual leaders say what they need most is truth because I'm not on mission to get you behind me. I'm on mission to help you be behind Jesus. 
And so Paul says, I'm going to speak truth to you. So whether he was in person or whether he was away, Paul spoke truth. And his truth speech brings pain. Understand this. If you're going to lead spiritually and you're going to do spiritual warfare, you're going to hurt some people. You want to be a surgeon? You're going to cut some people. You're going to be a leader? You're going to hurt some people. The test is not whether or not they were hurt. The test is the source of the pain. Jesus hurt some people. He didn't hurt people with his personality. He didn't hurt people with his volume. He didn't hurt people with his physical assaults. The hurt came by the stripping away of the reality of their sinfulness. The hurt came from the shamefulness exposed of their sinfulness that needed the shepherd king to redeem them from, right? That's where the hurt comes from. Paul says, my letter causes you pain. Even if it made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Although, I do regret it. <laughs> for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Paul says, ultimately, I'm not, I'm not upset that my letter made you hurt or that my truth speech brought you pain because I saw God use it and you repent. But my goal was not to hurt you. That was not my mission. I was not sitting there thinking I want to hurt you now. Now, I'm just going to meddle a little bit here. Uh, like, out of Steve's heart as a parent, there's times my kids do stuff, and I don't believe uh, Paul or Ted Tripp in that moment, who wrote like Age of Opportunity and War of Words and Shepherding Child's Heart. And they all say things like this, when your kids and your teenagers sin, it's not primarily about you, they're sinning against God. But it feels personal to me. And sometimes in my flesh, their sin has hurt me. And so my punishment has because I want them not in a godly way, but maybe even in a revenge way, to hurt too. You ever done that emotionally with somebody? They hurt you? Oh, you don't smack me. I'm going to smack you back. You didn't hurt me with my words? Guess what you're going to get? You get silent treatment. I'm not even going to talk to you. That's going to teach you. Meanwhile, inwardly, they're like, oh, thank goodness, <laughs> silence, huh? And that just makes us more mad. Paul's mission was not to hurt them. He knows the truth is going to hurt. He's not, listen, hurt people hurt people. And when you're in a spiritual warfare moment, you're going, like, I don't have to say this, you're going to get caught in the crossfire. What's really happening is they're shooting at Jesus, and Jesus is shooting some truth back to them, but it's through you. And it's like you can't get out of the way for them to shoot at God. And people don't like to blame God anyway. They like to blame people. So it's your fault. So they're firing back. And we know spiritually, we blow it up theologically, like, oh, they're really shooting back at God. They're mad at God because they've been hurt. But that's not what they feel like. They feel like it's you, so they're hurting you. And so then you're getting hurt in the middle, and you're looking back at Jesus and be like, what's this about? How about you step up over here and take this shot? Spiritual leaders are using divine power to speak truth. They know it's going to cause pain. Their goal is not your pain. If your goal is to hurt people, that's not spiritual. Now, hurt will occur. But this is also what gives the freedom uh, when, you, when you hear parenting experts and they teach about it. I think Dennis Rainey does a great job with this. He talks about discipline your child. Pain's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to hurt. But there's also ability to embrace and love and affection and comfort and love. 
if you're not ready to shower affection on someone as repentance starts to happen, then you were never ready to start the discipline process to begin with. If you're not at a point where you're ready to offer forgiveness for right repentance, then you weren't ready to start the conversation of confrontation. Are you hearing me? This is, this is important. And so it's going to be marked by truth, and the truth is going to be pain. It's also going to be frightening. 2 Corinthians 10.9, I do not want to appear frightening to you. He, that's not his goal, but it's going to happen. There will be fear that happens because when you're a spiritual leader specifically, there is authority that takes place. There's just no way around it. Uh, Romans tells us you should be afraid of even the world's authorities when you do wrong. You ever had a cop pull up behind you and your heart rate goes up? I was coming across the dam last night, went over and wanted to try a new, new, new York-style pizza place. It's new to us. Pizza Kavachi, I highly recommend it. Other side of the dam, worth the 25-minute drive from Irmo. Great pizza. Beside the point. Anyway, coming back over the dam, timing it, and I'm coming over, and you know me, I'm a car guy. Since when did Lexington County pick up some Mustangs that they're using these days? That's wrong. Look, use all the Dodges you want, but don't defile the Mustang is my thing. But anyway, so I come, I'm coming over across the dam, and I see a cop, and I'm looking at this car from the distance, looking at the headlights. I'm like, oh, man, I wonder what year that is. Oh, and I'm getting closer. I'm like, do I perceive some lights inside that car? Or do my eyes deceive me? It's getting towards dusk, and I got hot pizza smelling good in the car. And, and as I get closer, it was a cop. And my heart rate was up a little bit, and immediately I'm looking at my speedometer. I was going a little fast. I know that shocks most of you. And he didn't pull me over. But you ever had a little bit of that when you did something? There's going to be some fear. There's going to be some fear. Paul knows this because with truth, it's going to happen. You can see it all over the pages of Scripture when Jesus confronts people, when the prophets confront people, there's going to be some fear. Don't ever th- You're not going to be able to spiritually lead and enter warfare without there being some pain and fear involved. And so there has to be truth marked, but there also has to be love. Now, it's interesting, there's a deep affection that Paul has for them, and if we were to fast forward to chapter 12, he describes what he's, afra- what he's afraid of his next visit will be like, and that actually gives us insight about what the first visit was like. He says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is what he's telling them. He says, I'm afraid that when I come this next time, I'm going to be humiliated again by a church that hasn't repented. That's what that verse means. What that tells us is they perceive when Paul showed up, and he's in that really ugly business meeting, and Paul's crying because this guy who's having this affair with his stepmother is yelling at him, and nobody is, is taking up, nobody's involved. The membership is like, wow, this is, a, this is a show, man. Get me the popcorn. I don't want any parts of this fight, right? They think that's what's happening, and, and Paul's up there crying, and the false teacher's like, see how weak he was? See how crying was? Paul was standing there mourning over their sinfulness. Paul was feeling a sense of humiliation for them because they're not ashamed of their sin, but he's ashamed of their sin for them. You ever been like that? You've been in a situation, maybe you've been a leader, and somebody you're leading is sinning in an unrepentant way, and you're more broken over their sin than they are. You're sadder about their sin and their decisions than they are. If you're any kind of leader, you know what that's like. A deep heart of affection for someone. You love them. 
Do you feel a kindred spirit with them? Jesus ministered as a leader and he fought spiritual warfare with truth and affection. I want to call you to truth and love. And then lastly, there's some strategy here. That's the word he uses. Now, the language he uses, let me read down through this. We're not going to spend long here, but, but I think that there'll be some practical help for all of us. He says in verse 4, the strategy is to uh, destroy strongholds. Now, he unpacks it, and he's actually using current to their day, ancient, so ancient to us, warfare. First thing you do is you go and destroy the walls. You've got to tear down the strong towers, the distant uh, scout towers. You've got to level those to the ground so the enemy can't use them, can't just shoot at you from above. Then you've got to destroy the walls. You siege weapons up against it. You can be very patient. You can wait people out, but eventually some siege weapons to destroy the walls. Then once you get inside, you've got to take some captives. You've got to take captive people. You've got to help them to understand they're under a new leadership, under a new king. This is what Paul actually said Jesus did to his heart. Jesus tore down the stronghold, and he made me his captive. And he led me in captivity. And so it's good to be conquered by Jesus. And then the last thing you've got to do is you've got to deal with any kind of uprisings, any kind of guerrilla warfare, any kind of pockets of resistance. That's the language he uses. Look at it in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Here's your strategy, God's way of warfare. Number one, identify how they excuse sin. Before you get to behavior, you got to deal with the thought patterns that are enabling their behavior. We think, then we do, then we feel. That's Ephesians 4, that's Romans 6 through 8. We think, we do, we feel. you got to deal with their thinking. And Paul says, he understands this is a truth war. He says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Specifically, how are they excusing the sin that they are doing? Chapter 12, verse 21 gives us insight into the problems of ongoing sin. Uh, I read to you there the sexual immorality and all that was going on. Well, let me, let me read to you one verse before that, 1220. I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. It wasn't just sexual. There's all kinds of relational problems. Every one of those are relational issues. Infighting, jealous against the gifts and the abilities of others, anger with one another, hostile towards one another. I'm going to sit where I sit. I'm going to be friends with who I want to be friends with. I don't have time with you. Gossip, I'm talking about one another behind their back. Conceit, look at how wonderful I am. Look at the gifts God has given me. Look at how amazing I am. In disorder, there's no actual structure because it's all about the individual. He says these are the sins. We would ask this question. When you read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, does Paul attack the thinking behind us? Sunday school question. That's called softball. You're going to smack a home run. Yes. Where? We can actually just think of one chapter, although it's all through 1 Corinthians as he deals with 10 different issues. How about 1 Corinthians 13? About loving each other. And what he holds before us in 1 Corinthians 13, we'll just focus there just for sake of time, is this is what Jesus' love looks like in and coming out of a believer. And when your mind is refreshed in the truth of who God is, it destroys a stronghold thinking that you can be on mission for you. You can't think the best about somebody and gossip about them. You can't honor them above you and be conceited. Can you? 
And so he destroys the strongholds by identifying how they excuse sin. When you get involved in spiritual warfare, find out through questions, through conversation, time after time after time, how it is they excuse their sin. I'll show you another case where he does it. Look over in chapter 11 because you're right there. Chapter 11, verse 3. It's a mind issue. It's a thinking issue. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. True leaders, when they're in spiritual warfare, will consider the rationalization that people use for their sin. And they will take it back to this is not how they have experienced Christ. It will ask them, Have they experienced deception here? Is there a chance that they are believing lies and not truth? Are they hiding, withdrawing, and blame shifting in the midst of their sinfulness like we all are tempted to do in our flesh? First strategy is you need to identify how they excuse sin. Secondarily, you need to bring their minds into submission. Paul says, I've been taken captive by Christ. He says, I'm on mission to take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is where he moves from thinking to obedience. From what you, how you think to what you do. The result of right thinking must be right doing. Paul knows that this is a truth war, but he also knows that ideas have consequences. True leaders move the conversation, the battlefield from the head, listen now, to the hands. Somebody who says, I agree with you, but they don't do anything differently, has not been won over. And that spirit, the spiritual fight isn't ended when someone says, you're right. The spiritual fight is not over when they say, the Bible's right. You're right, I'm thinking wrongly. You're right, I've been believing lies. The spirit, battle's not over. The next step is, okay, so now what are you going to do differently? Put off and put on. Where are we going to go from here? How is behavior going to shift? What should change look like? What should fruits of repentance be revealed as? Bring their minds into submission that's going to be fleshed out in the way they act. Thirdly, praise obedience and deal with disobedience. Paul says, I'm ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Remember the threat that he made that they thought was an empty threat? You want me to come with some gentleness instead of a rod? Then Paul shows up and he weeps and he mourns and he cries and he leaves. And they say, see, he's barking no bite. See, he's tough when he writes but weak in person. That's because when Paul got there, he didn't see a church with a, that was obedient with a pocket of disobedience. He saw a church that was disobedience, and he's asking, is there anyone that's obedient? But once the script got flipped, and now he's dealing with a church that's obedient, and he now still knows there's some pockets of disobedience because Paul knows this church is going to have to stand on their own feet with their own elders, their own leaders. They're going to have to defend themselves against every assault of the evil one. And Paul says, when I'm going to come, then we can praise the right and we can deal with the wrong. Find ways to celebrate the victories. Find ways to celebrate even small victories. Help people to stand on their own. Disciple them towards dependence on Christ and not ever on dependence on you. Find ways to teach young and new believers how to be armored up. 
We live in a world and a culture, you're born as a baby, you've got a solid uh, 18 years before they can, somebody can ship you off to boot camp, and, and uh, you've got another multiple weeks of boot camp and then MOS school before you could ever see the battlefield. In other words, you've got a solid probably 19 years from birth to when you're going to be in a fight. Listen now, listen, when somebody gets saved, they're in fight day one. There is no time to waste. And so we have to be on mission then to be training them to understand they're in war, they're in conflict. It's a battle for the mind and truth and behavior. And true leaders will engage in that. When we're on mission to change others for ourselves so that we feel good, so that we feel successful, it will always result in the kind of manipulative, defensive, power-grabbing sort of leadership that this world is drawn to. That's actually what's so confusing about it. Because we can manipulate, be defensive, be argumentative, be anger, be wrath-filled, controlled by power and intimidation and force of personality. And people will bow down to that and we think it's success. And I want you to know it's abject failure because it's not how Jesus leads. True leaders understand this is spiritual war. And we want to simply be conduits for the power of Christ in a person's life. That doesn't mean standing by and doing nothing. It does mean being ruled by strength under control, meekness and gentleness, love that deals in truth. The fact is, we've all been in spiritual warfare this past week, and we're all going to go in spiritual warfare this week. True leaders wage spiritual warfare in Christ's power and not their own. And isn't that our only hope? Because the last time I checked, I can't make dead people come alive. But I know the one who can. Last time I checked, I can't make hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. But I know the one who can. Last time I checked, I couldn't outsmart the evil one. But I know the one who has. And I know the one who came as a lamb it was a lion of the tribe of Judah who hung on a cross in meekness and gentleness and died for my sin and he rose in power. And what we want to be on mission for is to see that resurrection power unleashed in every person we come across for salvation or for sanctification. True leaders wage spiritual warfare in Christ's power and not in their own. 